joy in the house this morning, isn't there? I like it when it's like this. This is so much better. Golly. You know, if you're super, super religious and you're looking for the guilt fest, you're going to leave so disappointed this morning. Wow. You know, um, <laughs> you know, I was talking to this guy one time and he was like, well, my wife and I were talking and it, came, it was born out of a conversation. This guy came to the vineyard and he really liked it, but he decided not to come to the vineyard anymore. And one of the reasons he decided not to come to the vineyard anymore was because, in his own words, it was too relaxed. If I can translate that for you, it just wasn't religious enough to make him feel like he had been to church. So he just hadn't felt beat up enough. So if you, if you need a good beating, you, you probably won't find it here. Aww. Shucks. Hey, if you want to, open up your Bibles to uh, Proverbs. We're going we're gonna to jump around a little bit this morning. I normally don't jump around. But then we're going to jump around this morning. Uh, This morning we're going to talk about a few things. I might spend a couple weeks on this because it just feels like a big deal to me right now. We're going to talk about hopes. We're going to talk about dreams. We're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about vision. And we're going to talk about work. All right? Hopes, dreams, life, vision, and work. Hopes, dreams, life, vision, and work. Here's why we need to talk about hopes, dreams, life, vision, and work. The main reason we need to talk about this is because, I don't know if you guys have realized this yet or not, but life is short. Life is short. Uh, I was looking on Google this week, and apparently the life expectancy in the United States right now is 78.4 years. You have 78.4 years to make your life count. And I can tell you, as someone who's getting older, the older I get, the more I realize life is short, it's fleeting, it's slipping through my hands, it's like trying to catch water. The more, I, the more I try, the more it, it drips through. It's happening all the time. Life happens even if you aren't planning on it happening. You can go to sleep and five years later wake up and be the exact same person that you were five years ago. And when that happens, you wake up and you're utterly depressed. Right? I've done it. I've done it. I haven't done it for five years, thanks Jesus, but I've done it for like a year. One time I went to sleep and I woke up and it was a year later and, and I hadn't changed. Like my heart and the internal structure of who I am hadn't changed my life condition hadn't changed. Ah! The coffee's good this morning. You can tell, right? <laughs> but one of the things I wanted to say, want to say this morning is this. Life is short, and life is more than eating and drinking. It's more than going to sleep, waking up, doing your job coming home, taking out the trash, feeding the dog, cooking dinner, washing the dishes, catching a couple episodes of your favorite sitcom and going back to sleep to do it all over again. Life is way more than that. Life is incredibly important. One of the reasons we know that life is important is because God just values life. He values life so much that he, that he sets his image upon creation and he sets his image upon humanity in a, in a special way. He has set his image upon every single person in the room in a very special way. It is enduring. It's been somewhat marred, but it isn't removable. It's the indelible fingerprint of God. It's been put upon your life. You're important. You know, and this isn't just a feel-good message from Pastor Adam. You know, I'm not trying to bring you guys into my office and have a little counseling session. I'm a terrible counselor. Ask some of the people who have been in my office. Yikes. But God has put his indelible ink, his indelible fingerprint upon humanity in a way that he hasn't put it upon creation. And it's his, it's his, it's more than just his, it's more than just his nature. He has set his nature upon us. But when he sets, when the Bible talks about his image being set upon us, it's as though his, his seal of approval has been set upon humanity. You're not just a a living, breathing, physiological organism. You're a living, breathing, physiological God person. You carry him around. Like everywhere you go, you're carrying and you're reflecting something of who God is. It's pretty dynamic. The Psalms say it like this. In Psalm 139, 14, it says this. It says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. See, here's one of the things that we see from this. We see that just from even being able to understand even in the most elementary of ways, anyone who's the least bit self-aware of even their own body, even, even the fact that I'm, I live and I breathe, and that I, I, without even thinking about it, my heart beats and my lungs take in air and they pump blood around and there's this oxygen exchange. It takes good oxygen in and drops it off at places and when it does that, it picks up bad 
like contaminated carbon dioxide and it somehow goes out. I, I don't. I mean, I remember learning that in eighth grade. I, it took me like eight weeks. It's it's dynamic. When you become even the least bit self-aware of all these things are happening, it should lead us to a place of awestruck wonder. But not just that. It should lead us to a place where we go, my gosh, there's a God in heaven. Not just that. But it should lead us to a place where I'm able to say God is awesome. Like just being self-aware that I'm a person and I breathe and I live and I can think thoughts and I can, I can encounter life and I can have a plan and I can execute a plan. It should allow us to worship God, but it's, it's deeper than just allowing us to worship God. One of the things that's being told in creation, one of the things that's being told in the fact that we all sit in the purple room right now, one of the things that's being told is that God values life and God values people. And he puts an incredible amount of value on the 78.4 years that you all get. By the way, the life expectancy in Afghanistan right now is 43 years. You know, come on. Life's important. Life is important, and people are important. Here's the other thing. Life is so important, and people are so important, that, that, that God says it like this. Jesus said in his teaching one time, he says, a sparrow can't even fall out of the sky without God knowing about it. One sparrow. A starling can't even fall out of the sky dead in the middle of the road that no one will ever see without God taking note of it. What kind of God counts dead sparrows? What kind of God counts dead sparrows? It's the kind of God who values life. Jesus goes on to say, not only that, but my Father in heaven knows every hair that's on your head. What kind of God counts the hairs on people's heads? The kind of God that thinks that people are important and the kind of God who values life. God loves Dr. Ray. It's, it's just easier counting. It's like, I've got that one done. Hmm, sympathy, y'all. I like it. Life is precious and life is important. Not only that, but we see that life is precious and important in the garden. God creates Adam, God creates Eve. He puts his fingerprints on them. He, he, he permanently puts his image upon humanity. He sets before them a garden of all kinds of possibilities. He says, hey guys, don't go eat the, tr- the fruit off of this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And they, they go and eat it. You know, There's one rule, and they break it. And there's just dire consequences. Sin enters the world. But that's not, the, that's not the worst part of it all. The worst part is that death enters the world. See, sin always leads to death. There was one rule, they broke it, death enters the world. God values life so much that he, that he wouldn't even let a rebellious and disobedient people keep him from fellowship and keep him from executing his plan on the earth. And so when he went about to set it right, when he went about to set his plan into motion to regain and recapture fellowship with humanity... He said, I value these people so much. He said, I value these people so very much and I value their life. I value their 78.4 years so much that I am going to make it right. And he didn't make it right just by, by saying, okay, time out, let's redo. He didn't just shake the etzer sketch and start over. He didn't just say, I'll just wipe it off and create a new earth. No, what he did, he says, I'm going to stick with the plan. You know, one of the things about God is he will stick with the plan. He doesn't give up on people. He is a God of first and second and third and five chances. If he's been around me at all, he's the God of like 19,000 chances. Ask my wife. But it gets beyond that. He doesn't say, I'm going to just stick with the plan. He's, he sticks with the plan knowing that he's going to have to pay for it. And he pays for it, not flippantly, he pays for it in the most expensive way possible. He pays for it with his son, He pays for it by sending His Son to the planet. So I want you to get this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they dwell together in perfect harmony. They dwell together in perfect community, a sweet fellowship of the Trinity. And at some point, because people on earth, rebellious people, just like you and I, have screwed it up, there's going to be a break in the fellowship. One of the three has to leave heaven. That's awful, right? It would be heartbreaking. How many of you fathers and mothers have had your children leave home? You know what I'm talking about. When when the family leaves, there's like this... There's this pain. So Jesus has to leave 
leave the sweet fellowship of heaven, but it actually gets worse than that because God decides the only way that it's going to be taken care of, the only possible way that it can be taken care of is if my son pays the price with his own blood. God values life. He values your 78.4 years. He values your chance. He values, he values what you can deposit into the earth. He values what you are. He devalues your decisions and he values relationship with you so much that he was willing to send his son, which really means he was willing to break up the heavenly family and implant part of it into the earth. And in doing so, he was willing to kill his own son, see him be, see him be crucified on the cross, see the blood drip down. It's really quite dramatic if you think about it. See, one of the ways we know how, some, how much something is worth, you know how much something is worth? It's worth whatever someone will pay for it. See, one of the ways that I know that you and I are treasure is because God was willing to pay an incredible price for it. Jesus' blood says that we are treasure. Jesus' blood says that my 78.4 years on the planet are treasure. That's a big deal. Jesus' blood says that my life is treasure. It says that God values treasure. Life is so important that there's blood all over the contract. Life is so important that there's blood all over the invoice. There was a debt. God says, I will pay the debt and I will sign the signature in the the blood of my own son. Your life is important. A lot of people in here are thinking, wow, you know, I'm just really insignificant. There's no one who's insignificant. Everyone in here was a plan in the heart of God. You might be thinking, you don't understand, I, I am ruining... My life is just one ruination after another. It's just one bad mistake after another. I can't even pay my bills. All my kids hate me. My mom and dad hate me. I have not one single friend in the entire planet. I'm utterly alone. Number one, that's probably not true. I've never met that person. I've met lots of people who felt that way. I've never met that actual reality. And then number two, everyone in here is a plan in the heart of God. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, hey guys, freely you've received, now freely go give. Everything you've received from me, I want you to go give it. Everyone in here has been given 78.4 years and hopefully more. Everyone in here has been given the breath of life. Everyone in here has been given the opportunity for fellowship with God. And when we come into fellowship with God, we get more than just 78.4 years. We get communion with the eternal. Eternity begins to live in our life right now. I love what Dallas Willard says. Dallas Willard says this about eternity and, and entering the kingdom of heaven. He says, the gospel isn't about, isn't about how to go to heaven when you die. The gospel is about how to go to heaven when you're still alive. And so we're all given this possibility of going to heaven even before we die. Freely you've received, now freely give. You see, here's the deal. This is what I want to get to this morning. I want to talk about life and I want to talk about dreams and visions because I'm a person who's encountered God. He has paid for me. I've been utterly redeemed from the darkest pit. He's pulled me out. He's put His grace, His favor, and His affection upon me just like He has everyone else in this room. And because of that, I want to make my 78.4 years count. I want to make my 78.4 years count. I want to have the deepest impact upon life that I can. I don't want to just coast through life. I want to have deep and meaningful impact on life because God says that life is important. I don't want to live with a flippant heart toward my days. I don't want to wake up five years from now and be the same person. I don't want to wake up five years from now in the same spot in life. I don't want to, I don't want to wake up five years from now having no more impact on the people around me for good than I do now. Here's what I want to do. Freely I've received. Freely I want to give. I want to draw deep on the fountains of God's graciousness and His good to, goodness to me. And I want to be able to dispense from that. That's what a meaningful life is. A meaningful life is being able to draw from the fountains of God, draw from His goodness, draw from His, from his kindness, draw from his, 
from his faith in people, draw from his, from his, his intention that, that his heavenly kingdom be set up on the earth. I want to draw from that and be able to dispense all of that to people around me who are not experiencing the love, the joy, the peace, and patience that exists in the kingdom of heaven. That is what a meaningful life is. If you want to know what is a meaningful life, draw from God and give to others. That is a meaningful life. There is, no, there is absolutely no definition of a meaningful life apart from draw from, a, draw from God and dispense to others. You can be smart. You can have an incredible career. You can get so rich. You can have it all right. You can have... You can have two Lexuses in the driveway. You can have three boats in the garage. And when you die, it will be meaningless. I don't want to live that life. I want to affect people around me. Because I've been affected. And because God says life is important. One more thing before we get into the proverb. One more reason why God says that life is important. We don't have time to go there, but I'm going to give you a homework assignment. If you go to Luke chapter 19, one of the things, this is a parable that Jesus taught. In Luke 19, Jesus says that your 78.4 years that you have right here, they become exponentially important in the age to come. What does that mean? Jesus tells this story in Luke 19. He says, hey, there's a master, and he went away to receive a kingdom, or he went away to become king. And while he was away, he brought his servants around, and he gave them minus, which is a sum of money. And he says, here, take care of this for me while I'm gone. And when he came back, he came to his servants. He says, hey, what have you done with the money that I've given you? And his first servant came to him and says, here you go, master. I've, I've, I've taken what you've given me and I've multiplied it. Here's the increase that you've given me. And the, and the master says to the servant, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. You've been faithful with a few things. Now I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities. It's crazy. So what am I getting at here? Life is not important just because of these days, but here's the deal. The, the, the moment that we're living in right now, we're actually beginning to shape the age to come. See, here's the deal. A lot of us have this concept that we're going to die and go to heaven, and we're going to live a disembodied life. We're going to be floating spirits, plucking on harps, centering around God, singing songs forever. And for a lot of us, that sounds incredibly boring. And I want to tell you, one of the reasons it sounds incredibly boring is because it's not real. You, know, you realize that Jesus is a man right now and that he isn't just a spirit floating around God's throne. What's the point? The point is this, that the human body, it's going to stay. It's going to be resurrected. We're going to experience resurrection. God's going to glorify it. We're going to have meaningful and purpose for all of eternity in this body. God has a plan for us. We don't know much about it, but one of the things that Jesus said is this life is incredibly important because it has dramatic exponential ramifications on the life to come. Are you with me? So I want, to, I want to live a life that matters because I've been made in His image, because I've received His goodness, and I want to dispense His goodness. And number three, I want to live a life that matters because my day right now, even right now, we're all standing in two ages. We're standing in the present age and the age to come. And the age to come is an exponential magnification of these days. Life matters. And to that end, we'll begin in Proverbs chapter 12. Verse 24. This is the word of the Lord to everybody. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to underline it and know it. This is what the Proverbs says. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in slave labor. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in slave labor. So with all of, this, all of this in view, all of this in view that life is preciousness, that life is precious, that eternity hangs in the balance. Eternity hangs in the balance for people who are outside of the kingdom right now. And eternity hangs in the balance for those of us who are in the kingdom right now. With all of this in view, let us be diligent, because diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in slave labor. Uh, one of the things I want to say right before we get into this big time is, I want to say this, it's okay to want to do great things. 
See, one of the, one of the lies that's, that's sown into the church is that if you have a heart that wants to do great things, well, then you're just a prideful person and you just need to, you need to back up a couple steps and you need to get on the humble train, okay? Number one, everybody does need to ride the humble train, but being on the humble train doesn't exclude you from wanting to do great things or, and it also doesn't exclude you from being able to do great things. Are we clear on that? It's okay to want to do great things. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in slave labor. The other thing I want us to notice here in this, in this, in this verse is, is very simple. I, want you to, I hope you understand that this is about work and this is about effort. Everybody pick up on that? This is about work. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in slave labor. This is about work and this is about effort. And in the church, work is a four-letter word. Right up there with a lot of the curse words that come out of John Calabari's mouth. Work... Uh, I'm a fan, so I can say it. <clears throat> Derek cannot say it, but I can say it. <laughs> See, here's the deal, guys. This is one of the things we have to get our, into our heads, especially in the church, and especially as younger people in the church. Work is not a bad word. It's a good thing. Work existed before the fall. There's a couple things that existed before the fall. Work and marriage, both before anyone sinned. God's intention for, for people is that we carry purpose, if you if you 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 can't have a you can't have purpose without there being uh, an outward execution of that, and that's called work. So work isn't a bad word. You know, we live in a culture where where everybody hates Monday, but we we live for Friday, right? See, I want to tell you right now, that's not okay. That's not okay. And one of the things that that tells us, if you if you hate Monday and you love Friday, you're not living in your life purpose. See, I don't look, I, I look forward, I look forward to every single day. Here's the other thing about our culture when it comes to work. We typically hate Monday and we love Friday. And the other thing is this, we spend 40 years daydreaming about the day we're going to retire. Can I tell you something? I can find nothing in the Bible about retirement. See, I want to tell you all something else. I'm never going to retire. You know why? Because I love what I do. And if you want to retire, one of the things that tells me is you haven't gotten a vision from God for your life. You haven't gotten a vision for God for being a person who lives a life that counts. Diligent hands will rule. Laziness ends in slave labor. If you're, looking, if you're only looking forward to Friday, and if you're only looking for and daydreaming about the day that you can retire, one of the things that tells me is, is that we've slipped into a life that lacks vision and we've slipped into a kind of slavery and we're spending our days in a way that doesn't matter. I don't want to do that. Can I tell you something else? I want to get real here just for a second. I look forward to every single day. And it's not because all my days are easy, okay? <laughs> I mean, in the past, I want to tell you guys, I'm just be honest here for a little while. The past 12 months have been the most difficult 12 months of my entire life. I've had painful, I've experienced more pain in the last 12 months than I've experienced in my entire life. At the same time, I've seen more great things in the last 12 months than I've seen in my entire life. So because, just, just because I tell you, and I can tell you this honestly, just because I tell you that I'm looking forward to every single day when I wake up, it's not because that day is filled with, with roses and popcorn. It, it's, not because, it's not because it's easy. I mean, there's a lot of days that are really difficult. I mean, when you're, when you're, walking, through, when you're walking through life with people and they're on the edge of divorce, that's not an easy day. It keeps you up at night. And I look forward to it because I know that God is good and that He's put me in this place. Can I tell you something? I didn't ask to be pastor of this church. He made me pastor of this church. He invited me in to be pastor of this church. And I said yes. And when I said yes, I said yes to a dream in my heart. And I began to co-labor with God in something. And that puts energy on the inside of who you are. If you're not living with that energy, it's time to reevaluate your life. Having energy in your life doesn't mean that we're coasting on easy days. No, it says, I am going to focus my days on the calling ahead of me pastoring this church, writing music, loving my wife, raising godly kids. I'm going to focus my days toward that end. And even if the next day is incredibly difficult, I do not care because I feel called. I feel like God is with me. It's a big deal. If you're not living your life in that way, I want to tell you, church, it's time to reevaluate. Your life matters. You only have 78 years. Some of you in here eat tofu and you'll live to be 100 
You have 30 more. <clears throat> you have 100 years. You have 100 years, maybe. So a couple things about this. Number one, is this is about work. Work isn't bad. If you think work's bad, it's just because you're living an escapist life that lacks vision. So here's the deal. I want a vision for my life that exceeds my life. I want a vision for my life that's so big it can't be done in 78 years. If you have a vision for your life that's smaller than 78 years, you're not, you're, you're, you need to get like back with Jesus and find a bigger vision. You realize that God made a promise to Abraham that Abraham didn't get to fully see in his lifetime. That's a prophetic word about how life should be lived. God calls us into a bigger vision than we can see. God says to Abraham, I am going to bless you and through you, you're going to bless every person on the face of the earth. Abraham never saw that. He died with a son. A son of promise. But a son. See, I want a vision for my life that is, that is bigger than my 78 years. The other thing I see in this verse is this. Either focus and be self-directed. Either focus and be self-directed or be directed. Either focus and be self-directed or be directed by someone else. Diligent hands will rule. Focus and be self-directed. Live from vision. But laziness ends in slave labor. Or be directed by someone else. I hope you also know that either way work is involved. So you can't escape work. You either focus and be self-directed toward vision and the work that God calls you, or you'll be lazy and you'll end up being a slave for someone else's vision. Either way, work is involved. Either focus, work hard, and be a shaper, or be lazy and be shaped. See, here's the thing. I want to be a shaper, and I want to impact life. I want to strike the world with the hammer of God's goodness. And I want to see change. I feel like I need to make one little caveat here. When I say either be a shaper or be shaped, I want you to understand that that all comes under the umbrella of we first have to be shaped by God. Like like vision comes from being shaped by God. Like God has struck me with with his good hammer and then I get released to go strike the world. You know? And when it comes to ruling, when it comes to shaping, we only get to rule and we only get to shape those areas that we've been diligent in. We only get to rule and we only get to shape in those areas that we've been faithful in. See, ruling is such a big word. And when we think about ruling, it's really attractive to most of us because a lot of us have have lived a ruled life. And so we salivate at the thought of being a ruler. Most of us have been somewhat of a slave long enough that we salivate at the thought of being a ruler. We, we, we love that thought of being dude in charge because we've worked for another person's vision. We, we salivate over the thought that we finally get to tell everyone else what to do. But I want to I tell you what ruling is in the kingdom. These are the words of Jesus. Ruling in the kingdom looks like this. It's Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's what ruling looks like in the kingdom. It, it It springs from the diligent and faithful life. You don't get to rule anything that you haven't been faithful and diligent in. But ruling in the kingdom looks like this. Ruling looks like being responsible for others. Ruling looks like ruling looks like extending my influence in such a way that other people's dreams and visions come alive, are activated and actualized. See, there's two kinds of generally speaking there's there's two kinds of rulers. There's there's a good ruler and the good ruler establishes peace over his people and from a place of peace 
people are free to flourish and to execute the dreams of their heart. Then there's the bad ruler. And the bad ruler, he does this. He sees people as a commodity to serve him. And he begins to extract the nectar of life off the sweaty backs of the masses. There's two different kinds of rulers in the world. And ruling in the kingdom doesn't extract my pleasure from someone else. Ruling in the kingdom says, I will serve another person that they be great. I will, serve, I will lay down my life that they be great. It looks like this. Everybody in the church wants to be David. And, and the Lord spoke to me about eight years ago. You know, Adam, there can be no David unless there's a Jonathan. You realize that Jonathan was Saul's firstborn son. Saul was anointed of God. Jonathan and David became friends. And I wish I had this. I, I just didn't even outline it. But Jonathan comes to David and he says, David, you are my best friend. This is the paraphrase. He says, David, you are my best friend. I will do whatever it takes that the Lord's anointed become king. David had been anointed king. You realize that Saul was his father. And Jonathan looks at David and says, I will lay my life down that you could be king. I will lay my life down for the anointing that rests upon you. See, that's what, it, that's what a great ruler is. It says, I will lay my life down. I will lay my influence down. I will be diligent that I might rule in such a way that your call, your purpose is important and I will activate it. That's what ruling looks like in the kingdom. The Lord spoke to me several years ago. He said, yeah, everybody wants to be David, but nobody wants to be Jonathan. And there's no David in the scriptures until there's first a Jonathan. First Samuel 20. Thank you, Ray. It's a word from the Lord. One of the things that God is calling this vineyard to be is we're called to be a tribe of Jonathans who says, not my will only, but I will look for the anointing on someone else and I will lay my life down. I will take my position as firstborn son of the king and I will give it up for the anointed one who is right next to me. No matter what it costs me, I will lay it down. Everybody wants to be David. No one wants to be Jonathan. Ruling in the kingdom says, I will be Jonathan. I will look for the anointing on another person and I will not use that person's anointed, anointing. I will not use it in a way that extracts it from them and on my own pleasure. That's a wasted life. And that's, that's, a, that's a terrible ruler. So ruling is about being responsible for others. It's about creating a culture of safety and stability, an atmosphere where others can be can be free and run for their own dreams. In a word, ruling in the scripture is about fathering, it's about mothering, it's about parenting, and it's about pastoring. So I've got a couple questions. Who in here is ready to parent something? Because if you want to rule in the kingdom, it's about parenting something. Parenting, see, it takes almost, it takes almost no effort, and it takes almost no spiritual discernment, it takes no wisdom to get somebody pregnant. a total another task to take care of that child you can just you can just operate off of your most base desires and create another life but are you willing to parent something that's the thing that the father's asking us this morning are you willing to parent something are you willing to be mother to something are you willing to be father to something and as as a parent i've got three kids and my oldest is nine i'm not as experienced in parenting as some people in this room but i'm more experienced than others and i've definitely got enough of the parent card in my life to be able to play it and I will tell you that parenting is not sexy. You know, when, 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 Gwyneth and, when Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin go frolicking down Fifth Avenue with Apple and, and People Magazine, it looks sexy, right? It's like, dude, they're the most beautiful couple in the world. He's a rock singer. She's a movie star. They named their kid Apple. That's incredible, you know? Mm, I just want to tell you, you know, Parenting is not sexy. Uh, one of the first things that happened to Heather and I, River was really little. <laughs> and we were out, and we were at a restaurant, and Heather, River was just awful. We just turned him into a terrible kid when he was little. He's terrific now, but just as a, <clears throat> as a young kid, he was terrible. I couldn't even look at him hardly without him just exploding into tears because he had become so attached to Heather. Uh, as, soon as, as soon as she had him, she just held him for dear life. You know, she wouldn't even put him down for any reason. She just, just, just like, this is, you know, just, oh, love him, you know, which is good. I mean, whatever. <laughs> you know, whatever. Now he's like one of the most secure kids in the whole world. So whatever, you know, a couple years of pain, he's great now. But we were out at a restaurant, and River's like, I don't know, maybe 
I can't really remember. It was like 12, it was maybe 12 months, 18 months, but he was a little guy. And I remember this, like it was yesterday. And he was sitting on my wife's lap. We were in a pretty nice restaurant. It was just the three of us. And then there's that, you know, that sound that comes from little kids, that, that little rumble and explosion. <clears throat> and uh, we, began to, you know, we were just talking, and then Heather gets that look in her eye, like, across the table. And I'm like, what's up? And she goes, you're not going to believe this. And I'm like, what? And, he, and she's like, well, your son just messed his diaper. I'm like, that's what they do, you know? Big news. She's like, no, it's, um, it's more dramatic than that, Adam. It's, it's like all over me. And we're in this restaurant, and Heather stands up, and there is just poop from like from here to here, you know? So everybody wants to rule, but the thing is, are you willing to have poop from here to here? You know, parenting isn't sexy at all. Ruling isn't about sitting in the ivory tower and shouting down the orders to the others. Ruling isn't about achievements that give us a sense of worth either. See, here's the deal. Working for a sense of worth is like trying to lasso a tornado. It's foolish, it's impossible, and it's probably dangerous. If you're working for a sense of worth, if you're working for affirmation, you're never going to find it. You're never going to find it. See, we work because we're already affirmed. Like Jesus did no ministry until he was baptized. Spirit comes down, voice in heaven says, you are my son. I love you. I think you're great. You have my silver approval. Go do what you want to do. See, we, we work from a sense of affirmation. You know, if we're, if we're living life looking to extract our sense of worth from other people or our own performance, we will never find it. People will always disappoint us and we will, there are not enough hours in the day for the work that we need to accomplish. So what is ruling about? Ruling is about pastoring. It's about parenting. Ruling is also about co-laboring with God to see His kingdom established in the wild and outlaw spaces. The wild and outlaw spaces first in my own heart and then out there. Ruling, ruling in the kingdom sense is about co-laboring with God and the picture of it is God and Adam in the garden. Okay, God creates the planet. He creates everything on it and then He says, Hey Adam, I want a little help with something. Won't you come stand next to me and we'll bring all the animals over and who named the animals? Adam did. That blows me away. Why did God let Adam name the animals? Because he had given Adam the planet. He says, before that, he says, it's all yours. I want you to have dominion over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and I want you to rule and I want you to reign and the first thing you're going to do is you're going to name everything. I want you to name, it's your job. I want you to name everything. It's co-laboring with God. You would think that the God of the heavens who is able to take dirt and turn it into people could name it, could he? Of course he could name it. It's really important that he didn't. He gave that job to Adam because he says, I want partners in this thing. I want a partner. Not only that, but when you name something, you're responsible for it. Have you ever noticed that? We're back to this parenting thing again, right? So it's, it's one of the most important privileges that a parent has in their entire life is when, when their child is born, the father and mother, they get to name it. And the reason they get to name it is because they're responsible for it. And so when God said, hey, Adam, come with me. We're going to name all the animals. I want you to do it. What God was saying is, you're responsible for it. That's what he was saying. You don't get to name something you're not responsible for. You name it, you're responsible for it. Anybody in here have a nickname? Anybody in here a nicknamer? Does anybody here know Jeremy Holt? A few people. Anybody here know Hoss? A lot more people, right? Yeah. There's something about a name, and there's, there's something even about a nickname. And, and one of the things I look for, can I tell you something? That nicknames are actually very spiritual. They're actually very spiritual. Because when we live in the kind of community that we begin to nickname, one of the things that, that's happening, and it's happening at, a, at an invisible spirit level, but one of the things that's happening is, is this, is we're beginning to say to one another, without even using words, we're beginning to say, you're of me, I'm of you, and I am somehow responsible for you when we begin to pass nicknames around. 
It's, it's a way of sharing responsibility for one another. It's a sign of communion and it's a sign of life. Anybody in here have a nickname they really hate? <laughs> one of the things I can tell you, Wesley, is you have somehow found a community where people care about you so much that they were willing to nickname you something awful. <laughs> yeah, nicknames are actually, they're, it's actually, a, it's a spirit testimony to community arriving in the room. You realize that, Nick, you realize that Jesus nicknamed his own disciples. He called, he called a couple of them the sons of thunder. That rock, that, that, that rock, wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus were to show up in the room and just give everyone a nickname? Jesus was saying, I see this in you. And, and when, he, when he gave them the, the, the nickname, the sons of thunder, this is what I think was actually going on. He says, I see this in your spirit. I affirm it, and I want to be here to be responsible to pastor it and guide it. You know? It's deeper levels. So ruling is about co-laboring with God, and it's about creativity. Adam got to name the animals. And, and a lot of you in here might be thinking, well, I'm not a creative person. That's just baloney, Okay. Every single person in here is creative. And if, and if there is not some outlet for the creative spark to come out in your life, you will live a frustrated life. This doesn't mean that everybody in here has to go and join Ray's writing group. This doesn't mean that everyone in here needs to go buy a guitar, write songs, or write novels with Ray and Amy. Uh, it doesn't mean that at all. See, creativity sometimes expresses itself in dance, in lyric, in songs, and in art. But it also it also expresses itself in creativity at home as a mother in business you know here's the deal if if you meet a successful businessman you're not meeting a guy who's just crunching numbers can i tell you that you're meeting a guy who who is who who has approached the box that the rest of the community the rest of the business community works inside of sees something beyond that he's a visionary and begins to operate in something that no one else can see and that's called creativity you know so you can be a mother, you can be a teacher, you can be a businessman, and all of those are creative, and that's part of what it takes to rule. Diligence. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in slave labor. Not only that, I want to say this, diligent lays hold of dreams and visions, laziness forfeits them. Laziness is an inappropriate extension of childhood, the, di- the desire to be served rather than to serve. This is what laziness is. Laziness is, an, is, a, is a, an extension of childhood beyond appropriate boundaries. A lazy person is a childish person, immature in every way. Because, because to the extent that we're lazy is the extent to which we still believe that life is all about me and it's about other people doing for me what I should be doing for myself. No, not that. It's about other people doing for me what I should be doing for everyone else around me. So that's the essence of laziness. It's the essence of selfishness, and it's the, es- it's the essence of immaturity and childishness. Moving right along. Diligence flows out of vision. Like I said already, I want a vision for my life that's bigger than my days. I'm not looking to retire. I will only be diligent to the degree that I have been captured by vision. I will only be diligent to the degree that I've been captured by vision. See, all of this, this is a message this morning about finding vision. See, here's the deal. When the disciples began to follow Jesus around, they were following him around because they were following around their hopes and dreams. And their hopes and dreams were this, that God would come, that he would send his Messiah that, that the Messiah would set everything straight, that he would kick the Romans out of Israel, and that everything would be normal, and that Israel would rule again. That's what their dreams and, and hopes were. And when they met Jesus, they knew they were meeting the Messiah. They thought they were going to meet a conquering Messiah. And along the way, Jesus begins to shape and to form their hopes and dreams into reality. Okay? But we'll only be diligent to the extent that we have vision. A lot of you guys know this. My father-in-law and I, we, um, and my brother-in-law too, Justin, 
the three of us, we have, we have about nine acres of wine grapes planted. And the reason we have nine acres of wine grapes planted is because uh, we have sort of a communal shared vision of one day having like this, like this family winery, like old world, like let's do this together. It's so hard to put words on, but if you've, it's this, it's this romantic idea of the land is more than just my yard that I mow. I mean, that's what it is for me, you know, that it produces something and it's, it's the shared effort of not just me and my family, but my in-laws and my brother-in-law, and it, it's bigger than us. And then when it's done, when we've actually picked grapes, when we've crushed them, when we've fermented them, and we've made wine, it ends up being a blessing that goes way beyond our family. So it's like, for me, it's like this prophetic vision, okay, of like something coming out of the ground that's about us, but then becomes something much, much more. Everybody with me? All right, so this is the vision, all right? We begin to do it, and I want to tell you, foolish. Not, do you know how many acres nine acres is? It's a lot. It doesn't sound like much. It's a lot. You should walk the rows one day. You'd probably fall over from exhaustion. You should try to weed it. One of the things you find out along the way is you had no idea what you were getting into at the beginning. <clears throat> That's what happens with dreams and visions. When we begin to pursue them, you, you, about halfway into it, you go, holy smoke, I am, I am an idiot. I had no idea. And so now we're in this process of going, we are idiots. Can we get help? Can we have somebody help us shape the vision, shape the dream, show us what's right, show us what's wrong? One of the things, and this was hysterical, uh, we were, you have to spray grapes in Kentucky because of fungus and mold. And we, for the last four years, like our most prized grapes, there's two varieties, and two of our most prized varieties, like at the end of the year, we would, there'd be like no harvest and the leaves are all burnt off, and we're like, what is going on? And every time we go to another person's vineyard who has these varieties, they're the most beautiful ones. And we're, I, I was just, like last fall, I was like, done. I was so aggravated. I, was, I just told Ray and I told Justin, I'm pulling that variety out of my field. I don't care if we're taking chainsaw. You know? That's how I get when I get really frustrated. I'm just, I'm done. Only, so Justin ends up going to Napa Valley. And he's hanging out in Napa for a few days. And, uh, and actually, not even a few days, just for a few hours. And he goes in, and he drinks a little wine with the winemaker. And the winemaker is also has a degree in viticulture, which means that he has a g- degree in grape growing. And, he's, and Justin says, hey, I know you guys do thus and such. What are you spraying your grapes? And the guy's like, styled oil. And Justin's like, oh, yeah, we use it too. And the guy says, but never use styled oil in the middle of the afternoon. If you do, it'll burn your grapes up, and you won't have a harvest. <laughs> it's like, hello, thank you, you know. What's the point? The point is we begin with dreams and visions and then it needs shaped and directed along the way, you know? And just because something's hard doesn't mean it's not worth it. But we'll only be diligent to the extent that we have a dream or a vision. Proverbs 29, verse 18 says this, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. See, this is so important because vision always allows us to say no. Vision allows us to say no. This is such a big deal. And, And this took me, I'm 32, this took me like 28 years to get to. But every time I say yes to something, I'm actually saying no to like 27 other things. Why is that important? Because if you're not the kind of person who can say no, you'll never live out your vision. And here's why. Because we all have 78.4 years. Which is just a, this morning, it's just a mantra for saying you have a, we're finite beings. You have a finite amount of time in this body, on this planet, in this, in this season in God, in this age. You have a finite time. Not only that, but you're a finite being. You know, the smartest person in the room is still just the smartest person in the room. There's a smarter person out there somewhere. Your mental capacity is only your mental capacity. There is an end to it. Not only that, uh, the strongest man in the room, there's a stronger guy out there somewhere. What's the point? We're finite beings. We have a limited amount of time. And it's incredibly important that we, we have a vision from God for where to spend our life and where to spend our finite resources investing. When you get married, it, it eats up the bandwidth. Okay? So here's your life before you get married. Here to here. Okay? This is your days. This is your strength, your energy, your intellect, your talents, and your abilities from here to here. When you get married, that much is gone. It's probably actually more than that. No, a lot of you in here just got completely depressed. 
don't be depressed because marriage actually opens up other things in dimensions that you, can't, that you just can't go to alone. Okay? When you have kids, bandwidth gets eaten up. Let me put it this way. If you're a good father, bandwidth gets eaten up. Okay? You can be a jerk. Leave your kids. Go run around the world. Have a terrible family and kids will hate you. I meet those guys every day. Here's your life. Marriage, kids. Okay, now we're down to a small percentage of your limited resources, your limited days, and your limited abilities left. What are you going to do with the 25% that's left? Is this hitting hard? I hope it is. Because I'm trying to tell you the way of life. If you don't have a vision for the 25% that's left, someone will put their vision on you and your days won't matter. Your days won't matter. You've only got that much left. The bandwidth is getting eaten up with the good processes of marriage and family. And you darn well better know what God wants from you in your life and how you can partner with Him so that you can live a life of receiving from Him and giving to others and having a life that counts and matters, not only in this day, but in the day that will come. So don't freak out. But it's time to investigate your life. I also want to say this about families, because some of you just got depressed about having kids. That's not okay. Here's the great thing about having kids. When you have kids, you begin to, especially when you have vision, when you have kids, you begin to work across generations. Okay? See, there's momentum in generations. Tons and tons of momentum in generations. My kids are going to go higher than my wife and I. See, when I was a kid, I grew up in a, in a Christian home, and it was a few years later that I got into contact with the Holy Spirit. My parents were good people. They are good people. They did the best they could. They had so much revelation. God has brought me into greater revelation, okay? I'm able to deposit that in my kids. Now, let me just show you at least how this works along generational lines. Now, when someone is sick at my home, it's no thing. The kids just go and pray for them. They, they, don't, they think that's normal. You realize that most families in America, that's not normal. When someone gets sick, we call the doctor, we get Tylenol, and we freak out, right? And so I'm like, you know, and here's the deal. We, we take Tylenol, we go to the doctor. I'm not, I'm not anti-medicine or anti-doctor. I'm just saying that we're, we're, we're enlarging the tent on what it is to live in God. And so if you get sick in my house, Seth will walk up to you, and he will put his hands on you, and he will pray for you. And it won't be a joke. Like, you might laugh, but he's not. Now, what happens to kids who grow up every day of their life knowing that healing is normal and expecting God to move. See, I've had to learn that healing is normal, sign of the kingdom, and I've had to slowly learn to expect that God will move for people. My kids that grew up in that atmosphere, they're going to go so far much further than me. They're going to go so much higher. You know what that's called? Momentum. Across generations. I'm living for today, and I'm living for people I'll never see. That's why vision is such a big deal. Where there, is no peop- where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. Restraint is the key. We, we've got we to focus in here. We've got to focus in. Oh. <clears throat> so we need vision, we need focus, but how do we match our desires with God's plan and purpose? A few more things and then I'll be done. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Most of us love this scripture, right? You know, the, I, I want to tell you why we love this scripture. We love this scripture because it gets to the very heart of hopes and dreams on the inside of us. It speaks to it. It's like, it's the needle on the hopes and dreams. It begins to needle all that and stir that up. If you begin to dwell and meditate on this scripture, it just needles you in a good sort of way. And it appears like we've got a, we've got a genie in a Bible, Right? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you everything you ever want, genie in a Bible. But this is the key, for me anyway, this is the key, or one of the keys, let me put it that way, not the key, but it's definitely one of the keys to partnering with God for vision over your life. People love this verse. Because it hits us in our hopes and dreams. And everybody here has desires, Everybody in the room has desires. We have desires about 
what we're going to wear. We have desires about where we might eat after church. We have desires about <clears throat> who we're going to marry. We have, we have desires about, you know, what kind of kids we want to have. We have desires about what kind of car we want to park in our driveway. We have desires about, like, this is the other thing, too. Everybody in here wants to be important in other people's eyes. So, you know, we want to have friends. But we, even bigger than that, everybody wants to be, everybody, wants, everybody in here wants to be important in people's eyes. We want, we want to be the kind of people who are so important that, like, people just come to us and just bask in our presence, you know. And, and they ask us, kind sir, could you, could you, is there room in your heart for one more friend? And, 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 we, and we really want to be the kind of people that say, would say, no, there's no, there's no more room in my heart. Perhaps in the next ice age, I'll have room for another friend. Perhaps when one of my current very important friends dies, there will be room on the list for you. We'll put you on the list. My wife will get back to you someday. Every, everyone's looking for that. Everyone wants to be important. Everyone has desires. And this is one of those scriptures that just sort of like, Stirs all that up. We want to be important. We want to be the big dog. We want to call shots. We want to have people marvel. We want parents to name their children after us. We want to have young maidens swoon in our presence. Girls, you just laughed. It's true. Every guy wants to have young maidens swoon in his presence. We want to have old cigar-smoking businessmen call us into their corner offices. We want to be consultants. Can I tell you? Everybody in here wants to be a consultant. You don't know it, but it's, you're, and if, you, if you're like, no, that's not true. It's totally true. You're just such powerful denial right now. <laughs> we want to be important, and we want to get approval. And in short, we're looking for the payoff. And, and I want to tell you that there's payoff in this scripture right here, but the payoff is transformation, okay? This is a transformational, it's a formational Scripture, and it's, a, it's the kind of formation that leads to acquiring a God dream and a God vision for your life. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. How many of you can delight in something or someone that you have no desire for? Impossible, right? The ability to delight is connected to desire in the first place. Am I right? Can I tell you something? I delight in my wife because my desire is for her. And I want to tell you, and, this, and I'm not even preaching at this point. We'll just take a time out. I'm not preaching. Super transparent, real Adam. I have more delight in my wife now than I did 15 years ago. It's increased. And right along with the delight, my desire for her has increased. It's actually possible. See, it's impossible to delight yourself in anything that you have no desire for. See, when we, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, He can give us the desires of our heart because our desires, our hopes, and our dreams, our goals, they've all been purified and filtered by a reasonable desire for Him to begin with. A desire for the Lord, it's purification over my heart. When I have a hunger and I have a thirst for God, it purifies my heart. And from that place, God is free to say, given, you know, not genie in a bible it's do i desire him he is free to give to the extent that i'm willing to delight it's another way to say it and my my ability to delight is measured in my desire for him see desire is really important but sometimes desire emerges in an unexpected way desires desires depend upon experience okay desire it it totally depends upon experience. I'll give you an example. Um, anybody in here like to eat oysters? A few, yeah. When I, when I was a kid, like, this is sort of new for me. <clears throat> for most of my adult life, I wouldn't even, like, to even look at a, an oyster, turn my stomach, okay? And this is, it, it's, a, it's really rooted in my childhood. I got super wounded. I need so-and-so. <clears throat> just, just, just destroyed. I was, is that my, is that my grandmother's house? Um, <laughs> But this, is a, this is a Thanksgiving story. But um, when I was growing up, we had the card table in the other room, you know, and the kids were eating there, and there was sort of a buffet of stinky food. And it was mostly ruined by this one casserole of hell. <laughs> Just a boiling dish of hell, you know? At least that's the way it looked to me when I was eight years old. 
and it was it was oyster casserole, which is basically like you know, oysters, crackers, mushroom soup, and the devil. You just <laughs> you just take those four ingredients, you stick it in the oven, you turn it on, you boil it out, you plop it out. It smells like ruined my life. Okay, the and, and what made it worse? I'm, what even grew the, di- like, I totally distrusted that. I was like, I, that's horrible, you know? <laughs> my distrust for that dish grew because the only person I knew who ate it was my father. <laughs> and my father was a man who, who occasionally would take sardines and open them and eat sardines like nasty little fish with mustard. I'm, I'm thinking, any man who will eat nasty fish and mustard and also will eat that dish, I'm done. You know, I'm done. Until. So I spent most of my life convinced that I hated oysters, having never experienced one apart from sight. Until one time I'm out with the guys, and I got shamed into eating a raw oyster. Guilted. Totally shamed. Just manipulation, peer pressure, just, you know... If it was, if it'd been a dog turd, I would have eaten it at that day. You know, it was just one of those moments. It's, you just couldn't say no. You couldn't say no and keep your man card. You, the only way you could have left the restaurant was castrated. It was been over. So I felt this this uh, on me, and they hand me an oyster shooter. And some of you know what an oyster shooter, but for those who don't, I'll tell you. Oyster shooter is a raw oyster and all its juices like um, Worcestershire sauce, some hot sauce, some horseradish, and, you know, in a little shot glass like you would take your Woodford and just... So here I am, I get totally shamed. I'm about to lose my man card. And I just plop that sucker down. As soon as it hits the table, I realize that for 28 years I've been wrong. (laughs) That was awesome. Give me another. In fact, around for everyone, you know. It was, like, it was like, it was like I've been redeemed, you know. Uh, what's the point? The point is, our desires get shaped by experience, and sometimes, sometimes. I mean, this is what the scripture says: it "says taste and see that the Lord is good." Like, how do you know that He's good apart from an experience of tasting and seeing Him? And so, one of the things that the psalmist is inviting us into is, taste the goodness of the Lord. Allow that goodness. To increase desire, and see, now I love oysters. Everywhere I go, I look for raw oysters on the half shell. Give me some oysters, give me some hot sauce, give me a cracker, give me some horseradish. I am a happy man. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Allow it to, to, to change the desires of your heart. And when your desires of your heart are changed, you're able to delight in who He is. When you delight in who He is, He's able to give you what is in your heart because you have been purified by an experience with Him and you've been purified by desire. Can I say that again? You've been, there is one thing in the scripture that purifies, and it is desire for him. It brings me into contact with him. Proverbs also says this. It says, a crucible for silver and a furnace for gold. Can I tell you something? When you begin to walk with Jesus, you step into the fire. I had a vision early this week, and the vision was this. It was Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Jesus, and it was me in the fire. Can I tell you something? When you come into contact with God, when you begin to live life with God, you come into the fire and it begins to purify you. And it's a purification that comes by desire. I encounter Him, I taste His goodness, and I begin to walk in desire. And my desires change, and He can trust a person who desires Him. And He can trust a person whose, whose delight is in Him alone. He can trust the kind of person who jumps into the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Jesus, and at that moment, everything changes. That was good, huh? So this verse calls for experience. It says, come and experience God. Recall how God has been abundantly good to you. Recall and relive those moments when God rescued you. When God intersected your dead-end life and pulled you back into the flow of life. Recall and remember until delight springs anew. 
three really quick things and then we'll be done. What do we need to do? Number one, we need to get a vision for our life. If you hate your job, you don't have a vision for life. The answer may be a new job or the answer may just be a new perspective on the job you have. Number one, though, get a vision for your life. Right along with that, get a vision for this year. Write it down and tell a few people. Get a vision for your life. Get a vision for this year. Write it down and tell a few people. Number two, vision and dreams are the intersection of my heart's desire and serving people. Where is the place that God can command the blessing? God can command the blessing at the place that my heart and my hopes and my dreams intersect with blessing other people. Number three, small things are really big. We live in a world that says small things are really small. I'm here to tell you, in the kingdom of heaven, small things are really big. Jesus says, little tiny mustard seeds, they grow to be the biggest trees in the whole garden. Uh, when, When the Father decided to send Jesus, he didn't appear bursting through the clouds, fully formed man. No, God sent eight pound, eight ounce baby Jesus. Little things become big in the kingdom of heaven. And where you're at in life, it might be small. It may feel incredibly insignificant. It may feel like that no one on the planet knows about it. And even if no one on the planet knows about it, that's okay because God knows exactly where you are. And he's the kind of God who says, the person who's faithful in the tiny little thing, that's proof they could be trusted with something bigger. You know, you may think, well, I just, you know, I lead a home, you know, I lead a home group, you know, home group leaders, there are several, you know, I lead a home group and only eight people come. Big deal. Father, mother them, pastor them, give your life for them. Even if me and the elders never think you've done good, God says, I see your faithfulness and I will make it count. And can I tell you something? I'm always paying attention to that always paying attention to the person around here or in life who's, who is laying fully down for the littlest thing. You may think, well, you know, I work at a dead-end job. It really stinks and... Can I tell you something? Own it. Just own it. Just, just own it. Go in and own it. God says in, in, in the most dead-end job of cleaning toilets for the most insignificant company in the most insignificant town, I will see you and I will raise you up. I mean, you know, promotion, promotion doesn't come from trying to knock someone else out. Promotion comes from serving people in the kingdom of heaven. It comes from saying, I will do the least little thing, and I will do it well. I will kick butt. You know, one of the things that happens, and this drives me crazy, is that, is that you know, it drives me nuts that we're supposed to be people who, who are concerned about the littlest thing. We're supposed to be like, you know, Christians are supposed to be people who are concerned about faithfulness and we oftentimes are the first people to cancel and bail and do a terrible job and all the pagans work harder and make better decisions. That stinks. And you wonder why, you wonder why Christians aren't shaping the planet? It's because we haven't been faithful with the tiny little thing. You know, we want to get a tour bus and go on tour. Forget tour bus. Like, what are you doing like right here with the guy sitting next to you who drives everyone crazy? Amen? Amen. Let's stand up.